welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. This episode is sponsored by Netting Pros. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Netting professionals specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugouts, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Netting Professionals is an official partner of the ABCA and continues to provide quality products and services to many high school, college, and professional fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. Netting Professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Contact them today at 844-620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Make sure to let CEO Will Miner know that the ABCA sent you. Now on to the podcast. Next up on the ABCA podcast is Houston Astros Assistant Director of Player Development and Minor League Coordinator Jason Bell. Coach Bell started his career path on the college side as the Director of Baseball Operations at Ohio University in 2015. From there, he went on to be the pitching coach at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. In 2017, he was hired by the Houston Astros as the development coach for Quad Cities in 2017. In 2019, he was hired as the Astros Fundamental Coordinator. That year, the Astros led all 30 organizations with an overall fielding percentage of 975. With Major League pitchers and catchers reporting for spring training, we're jumping into a couple professional baseball episodes. Let's welcome Jason Bell to the podcast. How long have you been in South Florida? Um, kind of off and on since 2019 when the pandemic hit. Uh, I did the alt site, so we couldn't fly. So everybody, like, we moved to uh, Houston for a little while, and then we moved our alt site to Corpus Christi from there. So basically, uh, I guess since the start of 2019, outside of the pandemic. How was the alt site? I mean, keeping players motivated. Oh, that was challenging. That was one of the more challenging things I've experienced as a coach, but it was a good challenge because like we didn't really, obviously, as you know, like we didn't have any games. So it was more of like, what are like, what were they doing almost like, especially if they were a guy that felt like they were not like one of the first guys called up to the big leagues. It was almost like, unless there was a widespread of COVID, they felt like this was like a waste of a season. So trying to change that mindset was, was extremely difficult, but a good challenge. Yeah, for sure. But it's like, okay, if you wanna if you wanna stick around, like you better you better be invested exactly. in this if you wanna stick around. Yeah. <laughs> and it's tough, like, especially for those guys who, you know, were probably like twenty six or twenty seven at the time and like they feel like they really needed to, to show some numbers in AAA that year and they didn't even get a chance to do it. You know, so that that was challenging for for those guys, especially like the low money like uh, senior sign type guys that have been hanging around for a while. So you feel for him a little bit. Here with Jason Bell, assistant director, player development and minor league uh, coordinator for the Astros. Uh, fundamental coach, I think is, is part of your title as well, but um, started with the Astros uh, in the Quad Cities and then have worked your way up, but uh, started on the college side and played at SLU in central Missouri. And Jason, you and I go way back. So thanks for jumping on with me. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you having me. I think you were one of the first guys to jump from the college to the pro side. Yeah, it, it's like looking back, it's it seems kind of like, you know, pretty normal nowadays. But I feel like, you know, in the 2016, 2017 range, it, it wasn't as, as common, especially for those who didn't play professionally themselves. I mean, what was the I mean, you're making a run at the college side. What was it? OK, I'm going to jump over to the pro side. Uh, you know, I actually really liked coaching in college. Uh, you know, I even liked a lot of coaching at junior college where, you know, there's not as many restrictions and you can practice as long as you want. And it was, you know, very baseball specific. But, you know, I, I felt like, um, you know, I, I w had interned at Baseball Info Solutions, which is now called Sports Info Solutions. And I started to 
you know, kind of start digging through the data a lot more and, um, you know, trying to see how you could connect a lot of that with uh, player development. And I, I could kind of see that a, a team like the Astros were, were interested in, in uh, looking at it from that, that regard. And um, I, I think just some of my ideas and um, passion for it and, and what I can do with, with people, I think maybe uh, garnered up their attention a little bit. With baseball info, what was some of the data that you were looking at? Or like, okay, this this makes some sense from a player development standpoint. So, like, like looking back to this, you know, ten or so years ago, it was a lot of um, does the shift work, you know, and that was like one of the debates. And here we are next year where they're outlawing it. Uh, but you know, at the time, part of my job was to just chart a lot of games, chart positioning, what's happening when the ball is put in play. And I just kind of started to see like some trends in, in I, I could see that the Astros were shifting the most. And even though the, the, they didn't have the talent to win a lot of games at the time, you could kind of see that what they were doing was working. And uh, so, you know, fr from that regard, it, it got me like to start thinking of things in a different different way. And, uh, you know, when I when I think about positioning, you know, I think back back to that point of time where. Um, I had a bunch of people debating if it even works or not. And, uh, you know, I, I thought it was pretty, pretty clear that it does. You're going to put the, the guys in the spot where the balls hit the most and have proof of it. So uh, that, that's kind of where it started. And then is that the impetus? You write a 17 page paper on on how to help the Astros. Was that how that all started? Yeah. So uh, when I was in college, I had Tommy John. And so I didn't really anticipate having an extra year of college, but I was finished with my classes. So and I wanted to try to keep playing. And uh, so I did a two year master's degree in one year, but I had to have my um, I had to have an internship uh, to, to get the degree. So uh, I went to uh, Baseball Info Solutions and I started like looking at all of these things. And I was like, how could I turn my final paper into something that would help me in my career instead of it just being like a you know, an assignment of a summary of what I was doing. And I figured too, you know, if I want to work in professional baseball and I'm not a professional player, how would I possibly show somebody that like I could provide value? And so um, it was really the Astros. I felt like they were being pr pretty overlooked because they weren't producing wins on the field yet, but I could see that like, you know, some things were coming. They were drafting some, some really good players high up. And I felt, you know, maybe this this could be something down the road because, you know, obviously at that time, all I had was a college playing degree or playing career and one uh, master's degree. So I uh, went through the college game and uh, kept like kind of sending my paper and not really hearing anything. And then uh, maybe once I got uh, enough like coaching experiences is when they felt like I, I could potentially add some value. How was it working through the Tommy John process? Uh, it was interesting. You know, I, I think that that really helped shape me as a coach, ironically, because that was the first time I had to really think about like viewing practices from another lens outside of mine as a player. Um, and it was towards the end of my college career. So I was looking to want to wanna get into coaching anyways. And so I would I remember my, my very first practice, um, like being able to not participate. And I always loved practicing and like, you know, all, all the details of, of a practice. And I remember thinking like, what am I going to do for like a year just sitting here? Um, and then I remember like the second practice, just kind of going up to the coaches at Central Missouri and asking them, is there any way that I can chart or do anything that would be of, of, of resources? So I did a lot of that through the scrimmages and such. And I tried to tried to feel like I was like in a, a low man assistant coach on, on the totem pole. And I like to just even hang in the cage and just watch, watch those guys, um, you know, attack certain skill development and, um, you know, I felt like that was the first time for me that I was like viewing things like a coach might. And, you know, I, I felt like that, that got me experience through, through a very difficult time. I mean, how important is it for a coach to, to stay with their players that are banged up? I think sometimes they forget about them. How important is that to stay with your guys that are banged up? Oh, it's, it's very important and it's tough, right? Because you know, especially at the Division II level where you don't have a, a ton of coaches and you have, you know, 35, 45, some places, even 50 players, it, it's hard to give everybody the attention that they need. Um, but I think there is a way the way that you can do that. And, you know, I felt like the, the coaches there always were, were very good at that and uh, made me feel a part of it. And so that that was that was really, really awesome. And you know, I'd never really been injured before in, inside of baseball. So it was it was a good challenge for myself at like how to, um, you know, motivate myself and stay on myself. Uh, so it was a lot of good things that kind of set me up, 
you know, for, for life after playing baseball. Um, and so I think that, that in the end, there was a lot of positives inside of a, a negative situation. Did, did you pop in game or was it during practice? Uh, it was kind of like a build up, and then actually in summer ball, you know, it just felt like the year before the velo was down a lot and, uh, you know, I just kind of was, was building up and it just kind of like had some tingly feeling. And so it just kind of came out, not really thinking that it was anything crazy. And it was basically like, seemed like it had been torn for a while, but not completely torn. And, uh, that was kind of the, the, the end of that. Hey, it's a gaudy stat, by the way. Astros are the only team in MLB history to hit 100 win mark four out of five seasons. Yeah. I mean, how gratifying is that for the organization? It's awesome. It, it just speaks to, to like the whole entire organization, too. I think sometimes scouts don't get enough love. But, you know, at the end of the day, like everybody, you know, from the recruiting world, you got you got to got to have the good players first. And, you know, I think it's just a, a awesome group effort and been been really awesome to be, be a small part of it. What was the most eye-opening thing for you when you got to pro ball from the college side? Uh, there's there's a lot. Um, it, it's interesting, I would say, how much it's even changed from my first year. Uh, like my first year, my, my job as a development coach was to add, um, you know, a lot of wearable technology to players and uh, try to get the buy-in from them. And thinking back to the 2017 season, that was actually pretty difficult compared to what it is now. And so I think – uh, changing some of the the mindset around uh, how development would be viewed was probably the most difficult part at first, uh, and then really just like trying to trying to find a way individually for each of them to understand and uh, back behind it, because at the end of the day, it was going to be utilized for their benefit, but it wasn't always viewed that way from the player's perspective. And so I think that was probably the most challenging thing up front in the beginning. And uh, it's been been cool to see how it's grown and what it's done all across the industry, really. Well, and you knew it was going to take some time, but now that the younger generation of baseball players are more comfortable with, with the tech piece, it just filters its way up because they're more comfortable with it. And then, Hawk, I mean, you're talking about when you got into baseball info, you're probably handwriting stuff or tracking it, but now yeah. you have Hawkeye. That yep. that makes things a lot easier, too, because you know how people are moving on the field. You know where they're out on the field. That makes things easier, correct? Yeah, exactly. I always look at it as, like, we're trying to maximize time. And so instead of, like, charting and doing all these things that eat up so much time, if that can be done for you. You know, it's just going to maximize our our utilization of time as a coach to better suit the, the players' overall outcome of, of their careers. I mean, you got a young coach right now that's thinking about trying to jump to the pro side. I mean, what are some things they maybe need to dive in right now to to help them get an opportunity? You know, I think first it's like where where can you add value? What what is something different that you could provide an organization? And like, for example, for myself, it was like you know I didn't play professionally. I didn't speak Spanish. Like, what could I, what could I possibly bring? And so that was where I kind of started when I was writing my paper and thinking of different ways that I could add an impact. And, you know, I think a lot of people understand the tech now. I think a lot of people know how to communicate with players, but like, how do you prove that and show to the organization that you could give them something that they don't already have? You know, do you have to have a social media presence now to get your foot in the door? No, not at all. Uh, there's there's actually plenty of coaches that, that we have inside of our organization that like don't even have social media accounts and, and things of that nature. But um, it, it is it is interesting because it is a way to um, showcase yourself, um, you know, from afar. Can you move up quicker in pro ball than on the college side? I just saw that you had, what, 20 MILB staff members that have had time with the big league staff since 19. Uh, so it kind of depends. You know, I think sometimes it's right place at right time. That could be college or pro. And, you know, sometimes on a college staff, there might not be, if you're a volunteer assistant, there might not be any movement from, you know, the, the two assistants for for decades. But maybe after your first year as a volley, there might be. So it it, it kind of depends. And, and same thing inside of professional baseball, too. And uh, I think it comes back to if you're doing a good job, you know, people will notice it will take care of itself and um, that the path will be created created that way and you did a little bit of everything coming up through on the college side too but your last stop you're pitching coach with maryland eastern shore i mean does that piece help that that you've had your hand in a little bit of everything working your way up yeah i, I definitely think so especially because you know when i went to college i was 
more of like a, a shortstop who couldn't hit. So I just became a pitcher and was, was very raw. And so, you know, I think coaching in college and doing a lot of different things really helped prepare me in the professional game where I probably spend the most of my time by far just working with position players. Uh, but just the fact that like I've had some pitching coach experience and was a, a pitcher in college, it, it does make me think about things maybe differently than, than others would, but it also made me have to spend a lot more time uh, understanding position players more and going in, going to the depths and, uh, and such to just to make sure that, that, you know, I was up to speed and, and ready for a role like this. When you say up to speed, I mean, what, what were things that you needed to get caught up on? You know, like I think when I be, first became, uh, you know, development coach and I'm working with defensive players mainly, it was just learning a lot of the intricate details about maybe infield defense or outfield defense um, and also creating my own viewpoints. And, you know, I felt like there's a lot of different opinions on certain techniques and it just took me a little bit of time watching videos, asking a ton of questions, talking to a lot of different people to kind of garner up my own viewpoints of maybe how to train defenders and, um, you know, kind of, kind of from that regard. Do you ever get to put it down? And you ever get to you get you get to catch a break breath every once in a while? Um, I don't know. It seems like not really, but uh, it's like I almost look at it as like a lifestyle. It's not really like a job, you know. Especially being like a, a single man, it's just like you know, I wake up and this is kind of on my mind, and it doesn't really feel like I'm working ever. And so that's always uh, a, a positive thing about the whole situation. I'm the same way. I don't I don't view it as work. Like I'm passionate about it, so I just don't. It just seems like yeah. there's going to be like microdosing pieces of it every day, where you know I, you're not you're not getting away from it too far because it just one I don't want to. Like I want to stay involved with it as much as I can because I love it. Exactly. Yep. You know, with the best players that you've been around, I mean, what what does separate what? those guys moving up and maybe making it to the ones that maybe don't besides talent. I think obviously you got to have some talent, but what separates the ones that ultimately get there and the ones that don't, you know, I don't necessarily think that there's one exact area or one exact way. I've, I've seen it a few different ways. Um, but you know, like when you think of a guy like Jeremy Pena, you know, since, since the first day he was drafted, he just goes about his business completely different, you know, even stretching and catch play and, you know, if you watch him five minutes before, you know, first pitch of a major league game, just the way that he's he's going about his throwing program in the outfield for a couple minutes and um, just the the attention to detail that way. I would say uh, from the S&C side, I think is is extremely important and maybe an area that's still a little bit overlooked in terms of connecting, you know, what you're doing off the field in the weight room and nutrition wise with, you know, your your, your goals on the field. And I think that, you know, that's, that's how you would be able to maximize your, your career the fastest, you know, because I think that that's where you're going to probably see um, a lot of things change on the field that, you know, start in the weight room. Did he get to spend much time with his dad? His dad's a good big leaguer. Did he get to spend much time with his dad growing up? You know, obviously growing up and such, but um, you know, his, his dad kind of let, lets him be, lets him go about his business, you know, in his own personal style. And, we went to Maine, uh, right? Awesome. Yeah. Yep. He uh, was uh, born in the, born in Dominican, grew up in Providence, Rhode Island and went to the university of Maine. Um, Trapper. So it's a pretty cool story. It is a very good story. Cause it's, I, I think that comes with, with former big leaguers too, because we've recruited, you know, I'd recruited some former big leaguers' sons. I don't think the big leaguers care where their kids go as long as they're going to get treated all right. Yeah, and just as long as they get a chance and, you know, to see what, see what kind of happens. Is there a barrier of entry to get into pro ball now as a player? In, in, in what way? In any way. I mean, what, what's going to discount? I mean, okay, so here's, here's the basement – like, here's where you have to get into. Like, this is what you have to have to even get a chance. Um, it probably depends. You know, I think on on the pitching side, it's maybe a little bit more specific. Like, you probably either need um, command, velo, or stuff, you know, or, or any any combo of those. You know, on the position player side, it, it can be a little bit trickier because it's probably not as, as clear, um, you know, to, to on the amateur side of what exactly can produce, you know, what exactly a major leaguer maybe looks like at, at that at that side. And so I, I think it, it's it's not as clear, but it, it can really depend on the on the individual's attributes themselves. When you're talking with your players, do you talk defensive efficiency much with them? 
Yeah, we actually make a huge, a huge uh, ploy in terms of defense. And, you know, I think one of the areas is, you know, what position you play on defense actually matters how much you have to hit or not. You know, if you look around the league, you know, you like everybody goes through a slump at some point. But if you play a high level of defense and by high level, high level, like better than than league average, then you just give yourself a, a chance to not hit and still be successful or to go through a rough patch and still find yourself in the lineup. And so you know, I look at it this way. Like if you if you get a roughly four at bats a game and you get a hit a game and maybe a walk, you know, on defense, you maybe get a couple balls hit your way. But when you think about it, it's it's roughly the same amount of impact that you could have on defense as offense because you're not probably going to get a hit every time. So if you're only getting one hit a game, but you're getting multiple balls on defense, you know, who's to say that defense isn't as as valuable or more as, as offense? And uh, I think kind of looking at it from that lens has kind of shaped my, my uh, viewpoint a little bit differently. And just in terms of, um, you know, you don't see a whole lot of players go through the same types of slumps on defense as they might offensively. So it, it always just kind of provides you a super high floor if you if you value the defense, you know, have a have a process in place and um, can continue to grow. Yeah, that's the separator for me. You guys finished third in the big leagues for defensive efficiency, so that's converted outs that are put in play. Everybody strikes out so much now that you can take fielding percentage and throw it out because there's right. a team that's going to lose 100 games probably that might field 988 because of the amount of strikeouts. And so mm. defensive efficiency is much – you look over the last 10 years, usually the, the teams that are there at the end are in the top in defensive efficiency. For sure. And if you think about it, like if you're one of the best hitters at your position that you play, but also the worst defender, you're still only breaking out roughly even, depending on which way you look at it. Um, and obviously there's a DH position, but not not everybody. And the, the league average OPS for, for a DH is going to be much higher than it would be from a center fielder who plays good defense. And so just in terms of pr providing value to your, your organization and um, your team, it's, it really does a lot of times come down to what position you play and, and how well you can play it. Hey, MLB threw a pitch clock at the minor leaguers after spring training. How are you helping the pitchers get adjusted to that? Because I saw minor league games that first week and it didn't seem like anybody really missed a beat with the pitch clock. Yeah, you know, I think our, our pitching coaches did a good job towards the end of spring training of like putting that in, into part of their bullpens and, and the games. And um, I think from that standpoint, you know, it, it was a little bit easier of a transition. And I think, too, inside the games, the, the clock is like so much in your face that like as a pitcher, it, like you kind of you kind of start to figure out fairly quickly of like how much time you have. I think it just on the pitching side comes down to, you know, how can I utilize my time in between pitches more, more efficiently? And I think that that was kind of the, the struggle early on. You think it was harder on the hitters because they didn't have much time in between pitches? Yeah, I would say that it was much harder on, on the hitters that, you know, people maybe didn't think about as much because they have to be back in the box so much quicker. And, you know, if they if they felt like they made a bad swing or, you know, there was a bad call that didn't go in their favor, they didn't have a whole lot of time to then step out, look for a sign and get back in the box. And I felt like that definitely hurt the hitters. You know, they kind of – it kind of forced them to be sped up a, a lot in the box. Do you feel like the hitters are finally getting caught up to the stuff that they're seeing? You know, I, I don't know. I think it's all relative. And I think, you know, as I've seen over the years, I'm always like, how is it, how do hitters ever hit this? Yeah. You know, and then every year you start to see the guys kind of adjust and adapt to it. And, you know, it's interesting to see like, you know, will people throw much harder over the years and will be people be able to hit it? Will there be nastier stuff? And, you know, I think it's it's all just relative because you're you're just taking the best players in the world against the best players in the world. And I think that there will always be some level of um, competition that, that they're able to figure out on, on the other. I feel like this is a great time to coach because because we are allowing players to be more individual with their movements and, and how how we're handling that piece. Yeah, you know, and, and I think it, in terms of individual, it can go much deeper than just even like their mechanics in the box or whatever. It could be even be their throwing program in the outfield from a position player standpoint. It could be, you know, their exact plan, you know, before the game prep work, you know, and even inside of Mass Bungo. And, you know, I think that it can just go to the depths and depths and depths that um, that we're starting to see. And it's it's really it's really cool for the players because at the end of the day, it's just we're trying to produce their the best versions of themselves. And how do you do it inside of a team setting? I think 
we've kind of always trended that way, but it's, it's been cool to see the, the evolution of some of that in, in recent years. I mean, how are you getting a pro ball is such an individual thing. How are you helping that them figure out that, okay, Hey, there's an individual component of this, but there's also a team component of this as well. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think it starts with like, okay, what's the long-term goal of the player? Like they want to, they want to be a major league player, but, you know, I think sometimes when they're in low A, it seems so far away. It's hard for them to really think about being a major league player when they have four levels first, you know? And so I think it starts with their, like the long-term goal that I almost view as like a dream, you know, it's like, all right, that's just so far away. Let's like hone it into where we are now. And I think a lot of times if you are producing your individual uh, goals, then you will also help your team win. And so I think a lot of times people ask in pro ball, like, you know, how do you balance development versus winning? I think if you're developing, you will also win, you know, because if you're trying to get more sweep on the slider for the pitcher, you know, he's, he's probably going to strike more players out, which is going to help you win the game. Now there always, always sometimes can be like, okay, well maybe he's going to walk a little bit more players or, you know, things of that nature, or maybe you're trying a new position with a defensive player. That's going to, you know, create more errors and such. But at the end of the day, a lot of them go hand in hand where, you know, you're um, if you're developing the player, you will also win games. And that's kind of the way that I, I look at that. I mean, do you guys track minor league one losses for your franchises in the minor leagues? Is that an important you know, I, I component? Because think... obviously working at the major league level, you're winning a lot of major league games. You know, is, is there emphasis put on that in the minor leagues? Well, I think it's always there. You know, you, you wake up every day if you're in low A, high, double, triple A, and, you know, your your team's record is right there. At the end of the day, they're all competitors. So every night that they go to the ballpark, they're expecting to win, and they're trying to win. And uh, that's that's always the goal on a day-to-day basis, um, but not at the expense of developing the, their skill set for, for the major league level. I mean, what drills are you seeing that you feel like translate the most to on-field performance? So it can depend, you know, I think it it really does come down to what each individual player needs or what his weakness is. And, uh, you know, it's hard to say that there's a couple drills that really help because I think sometimes drills are being done just because they're drills, but it really needs to work off of like, what is the, the, what is the goal? What does this player need to do to get to the next level and working backwards off of that, you know, because I feel like a lot of times people are asking like, what are the, what, what drills should we do? It's like, well, what's the, what's the problem first, you know? And I think that if you figure out what the problem is and then you start attacking those drills, you know, you can, you can then adjust what you're currently doing with with those guys as well. How do you focus on that piece? Okay. Here's your weaknesses, but, but not at the expenses of losing their strengths. Right. And so I think that that's the thing I've probably learned over the years a lot too, is weighing trade-offs and just looking at them. I think each situation is probably a little bit different. And so like, for example, if you're working with a catcher who struggles at the down and in fastball, but he's really good at the fastball down and away, you know, if if you feel like there are some little things you could clean up that will not take away from his positive receiving down and away, then then go for it. But sometimes if you feel like, well, by him improving the down and in fastball, he's going to lose from the down and away and mo- most pitches are thrown down and away. It's probably not worth it to to attack it that way. Um, so I don't think all thing, all trade-offs are, are weighed equally. I don't think it's always 50-50. You know, I think sometimes if it's 80-20, it, it might be worth the, the trade-off or, you know, maybe it's such a small trade-off that, that, that the overall upside of the other, other area of it is, is well worth it. How many minor leaguers now, once the season's done, get completely away from it and shut it completely down? You know, I think from a brief period for a brief period of time, but you know, I think if you shut it down for too long, it, it ends up hurting your your abilities for for your next season. So I think that there's there's a sweet spot somewhere in there, and you know, so, sometimes from a physical and mental side of it, it, it is nice to give yourself a little bit of space because the season is so long, it's it's uh, so redundant. But I also think that having an off day once a week that was implemented starting in the 2021 season kind of helps. Um, even within the season, you know, feel not not as grueling, especially for those leagues that have very, very difficult travel. Yeah, I really liked the minor league schedule for, for those guys, too, because they were someplace for six straight days. You get a day off, you're moving to the next place or you're back home. Like, I felt that was way – it's one of those things where, like, they should have been doing this a long time ago. Yeah, it's, it, I think it becomes a little tough for the players because they're facing the same team over and over again. But what I what I like about it is – you know, from a strategy standpoint, you're facing the same relievers or, you know, whoever you face on Tuesday, starting pitcher you're going to face on Sunday. So it's nice for the players to absolutely understand, 
you know, trying to remember and recall certain tendencies from the last time they faced the player that, you know, sometimes when you're only facing the team three times and, you know, you may not face them again the rest of the season, you, you don't necessarily naturally pick up that ability like the players do now. Will you have any face-to-face time with the minor leaguers in the offseason? Uh, it depends. You know, sometimes we do some off-season clinics that, that are, you know, can be optional for the players. Like we just did a, a three-week strength camp where we brought down some of the players to, to West Palm Beach and, um, you know, started started doing some some meetings with them, get them, get them in the weight room the right way and, and some on-field work as well. Uh, so it just kind of depends. We communicate with them pretty regularly uh, all throughout the off-season too. And then when will it get kicked up for spring training for you? Uh, usually, you know, the, the major league players will report, you know, early to, to mid February. Some players like to start trickling in, in in January and just start getting going down here in West Palm. Uh, so it, it kind of depends, but, uh, typically that's, that's like the timeline. And, uh, sometimes we do some other camps and clinics in January. It just kind of depends on the year and, and the timing of everything. And then do you have much crossover once the minor leaguers show up between the major league and the minor leagues? Um, a little bit, you know, our uh, major league staff does a good job of bringing a lot of our minor league players over to the major league side for, you know, maybe it's a couple practices or inside the games and uh, getting them that exposure, you know, that way when, when those guys get to that level, it doesn't seem as foreign. They're, they're well known amongst the coaching staff and the other veteran players. You know, once the season starts, how are you mixing in their training? Cause they play a lot of games. I mean, they're playing six days a week. How are you able to mix the training piece in with the competitive side? Yeah, you know, I think it kind of depends on the specific level. So our double A level, for example, has a really difficult travel. A lot of their bus rides are a, are a minimum of like eight hours. So you can go different volumes of days based on travel, when the off day was, you know, when it's if it's a day game or a night game. Um, and just kind of tracking their workload that way. And I think some of the technology we use helps us, uh, you know, from – from that standpoint and also from, you know, maybe the last night's game that these guys would should be well rested today, but last night's game went 14 innings, you know, what type of, um, you know, adjustments should we make on, you know, the next day's practice plan and, and looking at it from that, that way. But, you know, trying, I think the toughest part in the minor leagues is, you know, we don't have like the fall practice segment, like in college where you can, you know, go through, a ton of different, um, you know, practice variations and reps and intensities where, you know, now we have to measure, you know, the intensity and the workload on the same day that they're playing a game that's, you know, super important for their careers. Um, and I think balancing that trade-off uh, is is very, you know, unique and can be level dependent, can be player dependent um, and, and, and all, all that way. Will you keep guys out? Say, say the recovery level's not there. Will you guys keep people out of competition yeah we can if we really feel that like there's a huge discrepancy between it or if we feel like okay this this guy is really 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 um you know kind of down the last couple of days or you know maybe it's been a bunch of high scoring games and he's an outfielder and he's running all over the place he's hit a bunch of doubles stolen some bases you know he might need his off day a little bit quicker than than he would have the the you know previous weeks and i think sometimes it's it's balancing the you know, all right, the off day is, you know, four days away. It's a day game the day before, you know, and then there's a night game before that. So it's all kind of like a big puzzle that, you know, that that can maybe be, you know, what's the best for this player, you know. And, and a lot of our affiliates, we only have 11 or 12 players, uh, position players. So it, it's also hard because you're not going to have a whole lot of bench guys to, to kind of put in there anyway. Uh, so it, it, there's so much to kind of weigh in in those decisions. And I, and I feel that our, our managers do a very good job with that. I mean, how much information are you relaying to the minor league as far as opponents? Uh, so it depends. You know, I think as they go up the levels, you, you're, you're starting to increase that amount of information. So that way they're not overwhelmed when they get to the major leagues. And, you know, some guys want more than others. Some guys, you know, don't don't want as much. And, you know, I think sometimes it's weighing the, the differences. You know, maybe the guy who wants a ton of information is better off with, with no information. So I think it's um, it, it all kind of depends. And I think that's part of the, the art of coaching is, is understanding your players and, and what's probably best for them, uh, but also making sure that, that you're preparing them the right way as well. How long did it take you to figure that part out? You know, I think it, it changes every year. You know, I think as the, the game evolves, players evolve and players' viewpoints change. And, you know, I think that sometimes even from the time that the player goes from low A to triple A, he might have different viewpoints than, than he did from, from previous years. So I think it's it that part is, is very individualized. And, you know, players could start on one end of the spectrum with it and go all the way to the other where they're, they're probably somewhere better in, in the middle. So, 
Um, it, it is interesting too to see see how that that can change over the years. You know, especially compared to to year one. What does social media need to hear right now about coaching hitters or pitchers? You know, I think it I think it needs to start with what's the problem. You know, if the guy can't hit breaking balls, you know, like what are you doing to not hit breaking balls? Or you know, I think a, a lot of times it can be very technical heavy, and you know, I, I think a lot of those things can make huge huge impact. But at the end of the day, it's like working off of the problem first. And do we have accurate ways to actually measure what the problem is? You know, so if it's a high school or, or youth team, you know, almost charting like what what exactly that this player is struggling with. Because I think sometimes as coaches, we can get so emotional and we just remember the the one or two really good things or one of the two really bad things. And we start to just think that that's the weakness when, you know, really we've seen this 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 guy have hundreds of bats and we're really just kind of thinking about four of them. What are some things that you've kept over the years? that you've held on to in terms of like just coaching anything, in general, anything that, that you were doing early that you're still doing. Um, I think the first thing I think about is, um, ways that I've probably changed, you know, like the first thing that comes to mind is really sitting down with the player and, and having more individualized meetings. And that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be in an office. It could be during a, a BP in the outfield or, or such and really trying to make sure that they understand what they need to do. And it's not me talking at them. It's more of me having the conversation with them. And I think sometimes it can just be like the, us asking them, like, what do you think that you need to do to get better? And just continuing, continuing to ask them questions over and over and over again until they get to a point where like you feel like you're on the same page. Um, because I think that that's going to promote the most ownership. And if they're only relying on you as the coach to tell them what they're doing right or wrong, they're probably not going to um, make the adjustments on their own quick enough. And, and, you know, if you're coaching 35 players and there's only a couple of coaches on staff, you need them to be self-efficient a lot of times. And so if they're just relying on you, they're just going to they're not going to get better as quickly. I mean, what what are some of the things that coach maybe that's not doing that? Some of the conversations is it, hey, how do you feel, or did you like that? I mean, is that some of the terminology maybe, or the questions that you're asking? Yeah, I think uh, it can depend on the personality, but you know, sometimes people can be shy or are uncomfortable about it, or you know, maybe players are just completely like into that mode that like the coach has to tell them what to do. So to break that, you know, you can start with that, like. You know, how have you been feeling in the box lately? How have you been feeling on the mounds? You know, and they may say something as short as like, oh, I've been OK, I've been good or you know, not good. And then you just continue to ask them a question over and over and over and over again. And if you have um, a direction of where you want to go with it, you know, you just ask them questions that are going to lead them to the water that way. Um, and I think that that will, will continue to help uh, get them to self-reflect, you know, and then I think once once they have the awareness to it, they can then hold themselves accountable to uh, to understand that. I mean, how do you help your introverted players kind of get out of their comfort zone? Right. Yeah. And and that's where it's tough, you know, and that's where I think like the setting of that type of conversation can be very important and the way that you go about that. And, you know, I think that that's the art of coaching. I think that's why coaches matter. It's why no matter how many numbers or data sets we have, coaching still always going to be be top dog. And I think that that's, that's part of us as coaches that, you know, we, we have to realize, um, you know, what's the best way to, to do that for, for each guy. And, you know, I think one thing I've learned over the years, too, is, you know, you have to like we always say, like, you have to show them how much you care first. But I don't always think that that's that's possible. You know, I think sometimes that that can take a long time and players need to get better before you can get to that standpoint. Or maybe maybe players don't really care right away if you care about them. They would just want to get better on the first day of practice. You know, and so I think that sometimes, you know, you got to view it like you're always working against time. And, you know, certain players are going to be harder to coach than others. And how you go about that can be very individualized. But if you're if you're only waiting around to um, coach them once you feel like you've you've gained their full respect, you know that that might take a lot of time. And, and throughout you may that never time, get there. Be, you may you never, never get, get there. there. You know, you still got to coach them. You may never get there. <laughs> yeah, you know, players players change teams a lot. They, you know, they, you know, some of them need to get better quicker. And you know, I think it's a balance of like, you know, before you get to that level of. Um, you know, like a relationship with them. What are you doing until then? And, you know, I think I learned that from being the short season manager where, you know, you're getting the players and then the next day you're like playing a game. And then a week later, these guys are already struggling and they're like looking at you for like, how can you help me? And it's like, I don't know, I've known you for a week, you know? So uh, it, it just really makes you think like, 
you can still make impact while you're building relationships. And I think that that's maybe something that that can be overlooked at times, you know, based on some some cliche lines that, that we've kind of stuck to in the, in, in the past. Was Dylan Lawson a big reason why you went to the Astros? Uh, I knew Dylan a little bit before the Astros, but not a whole lot. You know, I actually remember his ABCA uh, speech on uh, Sunday when he was at um, in Orlando. Uh, yeah, in Orlando at SEMO. And, uh, you know, my, my good friend Matt Borgschulte was telling me, like, hey, man, you got to watch you got to watch this one. And, you know, I, I remember that that presentation a lot. And that kind of like made me think about like training hitters a lot differently. That that was awesome. And, you know, I've obviously gotten to build a, a strong relationship with with both of them over the years. So I I go back to that as my, my first kind of reference to, to Dylan. Yeah. Well, Nate, because you and Borgie both played for RC, right? Ryan Connors at Parkway. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We played in high school together at Parkway Central. And then we played in summer ball for the St. Louis Pirates with, with Rick Strickland together as well. Yeah, RC needs to get back in the game. RC, if you're listening, you need to get back into coaching. <laughs> back in Evansville, you do, RC. He's a we counselor and at Plaza Park in Evansville, he needs to get back into coaching. I remind him of that all the time. So, any other sure, coaches sure. you want to give a shout out to? Like anybody else, kind of helped you along the way? Oh man, there's so many. You know, I think the first person that hired me was Rob Smith. You know, and uh, I think one thing that I learned from him right away that was was very interesting. Uh, you know, Ohio University was coming off of a, of a rough season, you know, and he had just taken over the program. But, you know, I, I've never seen a, such an established good coach become so vulnerable. And, you know, we actually went on a, a little trip in, in like a cabin where there was no cell phone service for a whole weekend. And, you know, as a program, we wanted to talk about every possible area of development that that we could think of. And we wanted to poke holes and debate every topic. And, you know, looking back, to my coaching journey, that was probably one of the more powerful things that I've been a part of um, that I probably didn't really realize at the time. And it just really made me think about things to the depths before you, you try to implement them. Um, and that was like a, a really awesome experience just to watch, you know, a bunch of successful coaches uh, become so vulnerable. And, you know, it, it ended up uh, kind of helped shape the, the program the next next year. We had a lot of success. And I go back to that that time period. Uh, but yeah, Rob was the first person that hired me. There, there's there's so many people inside the Astros organization that I could give a shout out to. Uh, but Pete Putilla, the, the now GM of the Giants, would, would be another one. You know, he always just was, you know, it didn't matter what role you had on in the organization your first year, your last year. It's like if if you have an idea that could could add value, bring it forward. And we're going to have a an environment that allows that. And, you know, if it's if it's going to help us be successful, we'll implement it. Um tomorrow and so uh, it, it was it's been just a cool experience to see how, how quickly things like that can can reshape um you know the, the development of players you know and i i agree with you on that but as a coach with when it's ego driven a little bit it, it's hard because you want it all to work i mean how do you get over that that okay we're going to try something new here it may not work but we're, we're going to try it anyway yeah i think a lot of times it, it comes down to the, the areas that we don't have answers to you know, if we feel like we're doing some things that aren't having that much of an impact, you know, what's really the risk? You know, what's the trade-off here? And the same thing when we look at like trade-offs and different skill development with players, it could even be different things that we that we implement. You know, so if we're trying to implement um, a new piece of technology, maybe picking the, the right player or the right person that's going to like give it the, the right effort and just kind of explaining up front, you know, hey, like this is what we're thinking. We're trying to get better answers to this this problem. And, you know, we don't know how this is going to turn out. So, you know, and just kind of giving an opening like that, I think, can can be beneficial depending on exactly what it is. And, um, you know, I think from from there it can can help lead to, you know, better outcomes all across the organization or all all across the future. Um, but at the end of the day, if you're not experimenting with new ideas, it's hard to feel like, like you're growing. You know, you two years at SLU and then you go to Central Missouri. You know, what was the impetus for, OK, I need to go to Central? You know, I think both programs were in the midst of having a lot of success, and it was cool just to see two completely different styles of success and how they go about development. And you know, I felt like once I got into the coaching world, you know, even though all I had done was a college, been a college player, I felt like you know I've seen multiple styles that work. Like, what's my style? You know, what what do I feel like is, is the best way to go about it? Um, and I, I felt like the, those two programs kind of helped shape me a lot as a coach in, in terms of my viewpoints on on development. I mean, how long did it take you to find your voice when you first got into coaching? 
Um, I don't know. I, I think it kind of depends. I think once I finally was like um, coaching my own group of players, I was just, you know, all right, this is, oh, that didn't sound good. Or, you know, there's just a lot of reflection that goes in. But, you know, I felt like when I was first, um, you know, going through the, the volunteer opportunities, it's harder to feel like you, you're having that type of voice because you're generally assisting a lot of other coaches for a lot of it. And so I think once I, you know, was moving programs to places where I'm controlling the pitching staff or all of the recruiting, I felt like then I was able to get comfortable with my my coaching voice more. And I think even like coaching and, and doing a lot of lessons was, was really helpful for me early on because, you know, I was doing lessons from kids who were aged like four through, you know, college. And so I felt like my voice was being developed because I had to simplify things as much as possible for a four-year-old that like maybe you can take some of those those concepts and apply them to a 24-year-old. So uh, I think that over the years, just the constant progressions in that, I think working a ton of different camps uh, was, was super helpful because, you know, when you're working a camp with hundreds of kids, you're kind of coaching everything. And so I think you're kind of forced into this environment to lead some some drills and and um, different things going on in the field that that kind of put you in, in a zone where you have to be as efficient as possible with, with how you speak to a, a complete group of strangers and overall. And I think we all went through that as young coaches, like, OK, you're the volunteer coach and you may not be getting some of the responsibility that you feel like you should get. I mean, how do you how do you get over that? Because you need to transition at some point. And you also need to understand that, okay, I'm not going to get everything on my thrown on my plate right now that I probably want. So how do you handle that? I think if you just maximize what you're currently doing, like you can gain respect. So for me, you know, a lot of it was the ops, the operations, you know, I wanted to be the best at like scheduling the right meals and hotels and the buses. And then as you do that, a lot of times you can show to the, the head coach that you're reliable. And I think once you can prove that to, to them, a lot of them are able to start start to dish out some more responsibilities for you. And I think that it starts with just maximizing what you're currently doing rather than only looking ahead to what you want to do. Yes. Yep, for sure. For sure. Be good, Be really good at the responsibilities that you have, and, and you'll get more after that. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a fail-forward moment? Do you have something you thought was going to sidetrack you, but looking back now is one of the best things that happened to you? Hmm. got to think about that. Everybody's got to answer um, that one. <laughs> that's the one. That's the yeah. one everybody has to answer. Yeah, man. There's probably so many. It, it could be life uh, journey. Could be coaching. Doesn't necessarily have to be a coaching deal. It could be a life right. journey piece. That you know. Yeah, I think going back to the the Tommy John uh, example that we used earlier was, was probably when I think of like the order of operations. That's probably one that comes to mind because you know I, I felt like after that first practice, I could have just sat there and been like, you know, I'm just gonna get through it for this next year. And then, you know, once I come back, I'll, I'll attack it. But, you know, I think from the coaching standpoint, that really kind of that first practice and, and moving forward and, and such kind of really helps me, uh, you know, evolve my, my viewpoints and, and thoughts as a, as a coach. Um, and I think that that would probably be the, the first thing that comes to mind. And um, when, when I think about, you know, a, a certain, a certain time that maybe reshaped, you know, the future, when you're forced to sit and watch for a little bit, just things become a little bit more clear when you're forced to actually just sit and watch for a while. Yeah, especially when you're not like emotionally as like attached and involved in it to where you have all these biases. And, you know, I think then it just gives you like just a, such a different lens to, to view it from. And I think that kind of helps me now and like kind of take a step back at times and, and think like, all right, am I being a little too over the top about this or not enough or like, you know, is, is this lens like, you know, the best way to view it from? And I think what, what that has done is kind of helped me before I make, you know, bigger decisions, really try to understand, you know, as many viewpoints as possible that, that I don't have blinders to and, and try to knock down the blinders that, that I do have to, to help produce the, the best outcome. I mean, what are your set routines, either morning or evening? You guys have a grind of a schedule. You know, what are some of the routines that you use that you feel like help you? You know, it, it depends on the, the time of the year. Uh, you know, in the summer, it seems like there's always kind of something going on all throughout the day just because of different time zones. And, you know, the Dominican Summer League, they start so so much earlier just because of the rain. And, you know, they may be starting their games at 1030 where, you know, maybe the AAA team has just played a night game the, the night before in Sacramento. So they're finishing at, at 2 a.m. So 
Um, I think, think it kind of depends, but uh, generally I, I kind of wake up and just kind of first I start with make my bed every day. That's always like kind of a, a given that I do. Mine but too. Yeah, no matter what, just got to find a way. You know, even when you're in a hurry, it's, it's really only taking an extra minute. Uh, but I think it starts there and then kind of just recapping and reviewing the the, the previous day and, and everything and kind of kind of having some to-do list from the night before of, you know, what I want to attack first. You know, I've tried it in a few different ways. I used to start to – I used to make that to-do list right when I woke up and I felt like, okay, that's step number one, knocked it out. But I felt like I wasn't as clear-minded at, at, at that point of, you know, oh, man, like yesterday I felt like there was something else I needed to add to this list. So a lot of times I, I like to, to do that the night before, maybe right before bed, um, kind of make that list and start just kind of attacking them based on priority. And, you know, I, I think one thing I've learned over the years too is um, like how to reevaluate your time. So when you do go to bed and you're reflecting on the day and you're looking at your list, was what you did, what percentage of that is actually going to help produce the best outcome? Because there's a lot of things that everybody can have on their to-do list. Let's say that there's 10 things a day, but not all 10 things can be created equal. And, you know, maybe you prioritize which one you attack first, but from the time allocation standpoint, you know, did you feel like you allocated time that was going to make the biggest impact or, you know, were you just spreading out that time evenly? And I, th I think I've uh, probably improved the most on that because um, I think I used to probably spend way too much time organizing things that were already fairly organized just because I wanted to iron out every detail. But at the expense of that, I was kind of missing the big picture of things. I'll throw more stuff because I still use Sunday as like try to set up the whole week, but I'll, mm -hmm. it's almost like my to-do list. It's like everything that I'm trying to get done for the week is in that Monday and then I'll kind of shift it to different days and okay, this is important. I need to do this today and I have to get that cranked out. The rest of this stuff, I can shift it to later on and it kind of filters out through the week. So I end up getting everything done. I just, it gives me a little bit more flexibility with how I can manage my time. Yeah. I look at it as like a tiering system. You know, if you, if you do that on a Sunday, you know, what are like the objectives for the week? What are like the big ticket items that you need to attack? And then what are these next tier where like, they're maybe not as important, but like they have to get done no matter what. And then what's like the third tier of, you know, like I need to get to these, but like, if I don't, it won't be the end of the world. If these other items take a little bit more time and um, I, I try to look at it from a, the tiering system as well to kind of help me with, with all my jumbled uh, big, big to-do list. What has been your favorite convention? Honestly, I think probably that, that first one, just because I, you know, I, I was brand new to coaching. It was like, you know, one of my first opportunities to, to really feel like I could just have so many different side conversations. You know, I think that I, I didn't even know anything about hot stoves until I arrived and, you know, just watching some some very intelligent people debate some 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 topics that, you know, we don't have clear answers to kind of made me think a lot differently about my own viewpoints and, and how I want to evolve them or at what point do I give in to my beliefs and and, and change and adjust adjust them? So, I, I will always go back to my first first one of that and um, just just how how much it just kind of reshaped the, the way that I view view coaching. What are some other resources that you're using that you like? Um, you know, I listen to a ton of podcasts. I, I would say I'm a big podcaster. The Huberman Lab podcast is probably the one that I listen to the most. Love it. Um. I mean, that, that one, it, they're so intense that sometimes I have to re-listen to a lot of them to, to feel like I gauged in enough of the, the ideas going around. Uh, that's probably number one. I think... Hey, what have you uh, what have you liked about the Huberman Lab podcast? Because I have my own thoughts about why I like it, but wh what have you enjoyed about it? I think my favorite one he ever did was probably in the summer of 2021 about skill development and, you know, kind of how our, our brains um, evolve through skill. And just like some of the research that some things that I hadn't really thought about. One example would be like uh, visualization. He was talking about how our brains can, um, you know, work in reverse, just kind of like how dreams do. So maybe sometimes the visualizing visualization after the event could be help you like digest what just happened. Um, I thought that was like super fascinating. And there's a lot of research behind that that I, I was completely unaware of. Um, but I just... I like how he has a lot of, uh, you know, research and data backed up in, inside of his own beliefs before he's ever going to put it on on his podcast. 
And so I, I think it's, it can be jam-packed with an overwhelming amount of information. But I think that at the end of the day, it's like really scientific, which is something that I'm completely in, in enjoyment about. Uh, but I would say another resource, like honestly, with the people that I work with, you know, every day that I go to work, I feel like I'm not, I feel like I'm one of the, the, the dumbest people that, that are around. So um, I always have liked that because I can ask a ton of different questions that may be obvious to some, but but not always to myself. And so I, th I think just utilizing, um, you know, the, the people that, that you know that are advanced in that area and debating questions and, you know, not not being afraid to, to be someone to ask a, a stupid question. And um, I don't know, I, I have a lot of phone conversations with people with completely different viewpoints of myself that I, I respect and, and want to see if I can, um, you know, take their viewpoint into um, and into my my form of, of sorts to to always evolve evolve myself. I'm not scared to ask multiple questions, even if they're done. Like it helps me. I I think out loud, and so it helps me ask questions. Usually, I come to a solution by asking questions. So I'm I'm never scared to be mm -hmm. like I don't know what anybody's going to think. I'll just ask it because usually I'm trying yeah. to work through a, a trying to get to a solution by asking questions. Yeah, and I think that that's like. I think I've always been a big question asker, but I think over the years, I think I've started to really realize the importance behind that. Like even with players, in, instead of like feeling like you're talking at them, it's more conversational. Um, and I just think like the value of asking questions uh, just can generate so so many more thoughts and it can be a lot of times less attacking when, when you're debating a topic with somebody that's maybe super passionate about their viewpoint. If you just ask them a simple question, that's maybe like hinting at something that's different. It, it's maybe less offensive to them um, on, on the feeling of it. And I think it's a lot of times that way you can have like a, a healthier debate of certain topics too. I mean, what percentage of your players are visualizing or using some form of visualization? You know, it's probably tough to say because I don't exactly see, it's not maybe as, as organized in a group setting, uh, but I would say the majority of them do some sort of visualization uh, on their own. Maybe it's before they even arrive to the ballpark um, or or afterwards. Um, but I think that, that that area has continued to grow um, and improve. It's just, it's sometimes hard uh, to sell certain people on ideas that you don't have a whole lot of evidence behind. Um, so you just have to know a little bit of like, all right, is the juice worth the squeeze with this person on this topic, you know, because we don't have a whole lot of way of measuring that this is impacting or not impacting. But, um, you know, I think that, you know, creating some sort of routine for for each person can can help set them up for success. You know, with after action reviews or in the season, like, okay, here's how the game went. Are you covering that individually with teams in a team setting, individual setting? How are you covering that with them? So it's a combination. Uh, we do a lot of video game reviews for the players, which, which I like with, where the manager will lead it. You know, he'll, he'll make a list throughout the game and we'll have a bunch of camera angles. And, you know, it could be a lot of baseball IQ, you know, uh, things that you're touching on, especially base running and, and certain things that are really hard to feel like they're instinctual in the game, even though that, you know, players may know what they need to do with, you know, when they're at second base with nobody out, but then in the game, they don't do it. And so it's just like I think a lot of those conversations can spur a lot of the smaller um, elements of the game that that are super big, you know. So they may only get one or two chances in a month at that opportunity at second base with nobody out and that read, but it's something that can really impact the game. And so I think uh, you know we we do a, a very good job, you know, our, our managers of kind of leading those discussions. And you know I think it, it's been cool to see how it's evolved where. It used to just be like, and I'm, this was my, my fault and an adjustment that I've had, you know, when I first started as a manager is, you know, I, I loved leading those meetings and like talking to them and pointing out all these examples. And, you know, as the season went on, you know, as a manager, uh, I turned it into more questions or like, what do you think I'm pointing out in this play? Like, what do you guys remember from two nights ago? Um, and then at the end of the year, I felt like our team was, was on it enough where I had another player lead it. And I just sat in the audience um, I actually videoed the whole thing and it was fun because, you know, they're making fun of my style of how I go about, uh, you know, th those meetings. And, you know, it, it's fun because uh, Jeremy Pena is one of the guys leading the, that, that meeting and, you know, they kind of pass it off to the next guy. And it, it was kind of fun to, to see them kind of to mimic me in a way to where it was like creating like a, a fun environment that was was at the end of the day still getting the, the baseball IQ and base running elements that, that we wanted to talk about. 
Uh, but, you know, from the team setting, that that's how it goes. Individually, you know, we do a, a ton of that. It's it's not necessarily as formal as how often we do it. Some players want to come in every every day and, and have some sort of uh, meeting. Some, some guys would rather just do them once a week or once a month. Uh, so it kind of depends individually based on uh, you know each individual and sometimes when, when guys are just having a ton of success you you can just leave them be in, in some of those those areas uh, if they're on a roll I think as a coach it, once your players are comfortable enough to start mimicking you I think you should take that as a compliment because it means they're actually comfortable with you and and they feel like they have a relationship built I know some people are like well they're being different they're not like they're this generation they like if they if they're gonna be willing to open themselves up and do that and and mimic you like it, it means that you got them like you have a good relationship with them for sure and I, I i do a lot of videoing in general like i i pay for all the extra storage and some of my videos are just of somebody's pre-pitching the outfield that's four seconds so i have like eight thousand videos on my phone but sometimes what i think i realized when i first started coaching is i used to hate hearing my own voice until I started to realize like how impactful that could be for the development of my coaching voice, you know? And so I started to get comfortable with just like what I sound like and, you know, how I go about, you know, explaining different things. And it kind of helped me coach myself because I think the hardest part as a coach is there's no OPS to, to how you're performing a lot of times. And a lot of times the, the win loss doesn't give the full, the full picture of it. And there's not always somebody that's going to be right over there coaching you on how to coach. And so I think that, you know, self-awareness and accountability yourself is, is such an, an important um, dynamic. And sometimes it's by mistake that I'm maybe filming a, a drill of a player and I end up hearing my own voice. But sometimes you can set it up to where, you know, if you want to really improve your ability to speak to the team as, as a group, you know, if you set up a, a video and, and kind of reflect it in a way where you don't then become robotic, but in a way where you can help uh, become more efficient and more clear uh, while being authentic. And, you know, I think that that's kind of helped me, me evolve over the years. What are some final thoughts or something I should have asked you that I didn't? Um, I think it, as simple as this is like really looking at the big picture for each player, you know, we, we can make a big deal about, you know, what they're doing in the stretch routine and things that, that maybe do matter, but at what expense, you know, at the end of the day, if it's, if it's a position player and it's hitting, lifting, pitching, you know, if you're the head coach or you're the leader of the team, how much are you driving home the S and C side? You know, can you be the one leading the meeting with the strength and conditioning coach about, you know, that dynamic? Because a lot of times the players feel like they have a closer relationship with the, the baseball coach of it. So, you know, can that person help support it instead of just like kind of pushing uh, the player over to the strength and conditioning coach, can he be the one leading the meeting, you know, helping drive and support the S&C side and really kind of looking at everything from that perspective. And like at the end of each day, did we feel like this specific player got better on the S&C side, the hitting side and the defensive side? And if we felt like we maybe allocated too much time to how organized the throwing program might have been or you know, can we be a little bit more flexible with the things that maybe look more professional to the eye um, at the expense of, you know, improving the overall player's skill set? You know, and I think of that inside of mass fungo, you know, if one player needs to work on, you know, his forehand, the other one needs to work on the backhand, why are they getting the same amount of reps inside their mass fungo? Can you can you personalize ground balls even inside of their own mass ground ball situation? And really just going to the depths of individualized development inside of a big team setting. And at the end of the day, kind of reflecting back on just the simplified way, you know, hitting, lifting and defense. Like, did we, did we feel like we accomplished what we needed to there uh, at, at the end of the day? Well, and that's a Hawkeye piece too, from a positioning standpoint, you get all that information, whether somebody's good to their left, they're good to their right. They're, you know, that's the the cool thing with the tech now is you can see all the inefficiencies and you can see their strengths, you know, it just makes it, it makes it easier to coach that now. For sure. And I think even for those who don't have access to, to that information, you know, if you have some sort of charting system that, that could help you or, or even from what you see inside of the, the mass fungo, you know, where are they, where are they making most of the errors or where are they not getting the ball over to first base in a timely manner? And, you know, you can, you can then always kind of work backwards off of uh, what you're trying to produce. So, for example, if, if you're a coach and you don't have a lot of defensive information, what can you do 
to get defensive information? What can what type of charting system can you set up uh, that kind of help you evaluate the defender first? You know, and uh, what type of competitions with you know uh, beating the clock over to first base and and things can you set up that help you understand what the true weakness is of the player? And I think working backwards off of that in each area, you know, like, like we were talking earlier with like the guy struggles hitting breaking balls, but I think a lot of times we end up just doing drills to do drills that don't necessarily, you know, impact the the player to his specific needs, because I think sometimes it's hard for us to know the needs. And so I think that a lot of times it starts with like creating a um, some sort of system that, that helps us understand what what the needs really are. Had a shortstop one year, was really good to his left, could not backhand, so we allowed him to just play closer to the over to the the hole, just to allow more balls for him to be able to move to his left on, and and that was maybe something that you look right. at and be like, well, you shouldn't be doing that. I'm like, well, he's not going to make that backhand play, so we need to move him over to allow him to to be comfortable, and he eventually got better at the backhand, but I'm like all right, let's just put a Band-Aid on it, let him play over where he's comfortable, and he'll make more plays doing it that way. Mm -hmm, exactly, yeah. I think maximizing what each player has inside of the, the weaknesses and the strengths. Yep. All right, Jason, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you, Ryan. Good luck to all the professional organizations this year. It's a great time for baseball with the amount of crossover we have with professional and college baseball. Thanks to Jason for jumping on with me. Thanks again to Jim Richardson, John Litchfield, Zach Hale, and Matt West in the ABC office for all the help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email, rbrownlee at abca.org, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at CoachB underscore ABCA, or direct message me via the MyABC app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you. Free.